Well, on Easter Sunday in the evening, my wife Karen and my daughter Bethany and I, we left for Europe. The ultimate destination was going to be Switzerland, where we planned to meet our other daughter, Christina, who is finishing up a study abroad, uh, study abroad program there. But first of all, Karen and Bethany and I, the three of us, we flew to Paris. Now, I had never been to Paris before. We only had a couple of days there before we had to move on. So on the first full day there, we decided to take uh, what was called the hop-on, hop-off big bus tour of Paris. So some of you are nodding your heads. You know about this. I didn't know about this until just a few weeks before we left. So what you do is you get on this bus and you can hop off at key landmarks and you can see the Eiffel Tower or the Louvre or the Notre Dame Cathedral and then you can hop back on when another bus comes around and then you can hop off again and you can see about seven or eight or nine of these key landmarks in Paris. So what we're going to do today is to take the hop on, hop off, big bus tour of the scriptures. We are going to hop on in Genesis, and eventually we're going to hop off in Revelation. So from Genesis to Revelation, we are going to take a whirlwind tour of the scriptures. Now, we're going to take six stops in all. The second stop is going to be our Exodus text today. We are studying the book of Exodus, but we're using Exodus today as a launching off point to take a look at where God dwells in the scriptures. Where does God dwell? That's what we're going to be looking for. And as we look for where God dwells, we're going to be looking for God. All of us, I hope, are looking for God. Where do we find God? So we're going to find out as we take our big bus tour of the scriptures. So I will be your tour guide this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, we're only going to be able to spend a few minutes on each stop. Like this big bus tour of Paris, I mean, if you get off at the Louvre and you go into the Louvre, you might not ever get out. You might not ever get back on the bus. So here, it's only a few minutes at each stop. First stop, creation. God creates the heavens and the earth. What's he doing there? He tells us in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, he says this, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. A key verse to try to help us to understand what's going on in Genesis. God is creating in the heavens and the earth a home for himself. He wants to dwell here in creation. He wants to reign here in creation. So that's what he's doing. This creation account then tells us how God goes about making a home for himself. And it could even be said that he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. So God dwells in creation. And then what does he do? He creates humans and uh, he invites humans into his creation, into his home. So our experience in creation is sort of like being invited into someone's home. This is God's home. And so maybe you've had the experience of being invited into someone's home who has thought of everything, who is a great host or hostess, and it's a well-appointed house, it's well-decorated, there's a beautiful table that's spread out, there's a beautiful meal, maybe there's a bed for you to sleep in, and when you're there, you feel like you've been invited and honored and welcomed into someone's home. That's what God's doing with us in creation. He's inviting us into his home. However, we haven't been the greatest of guests, have we? 
You go back to the creation account and the first humans rejected God. They they chose to obey themselves rather than God and then they were exiled from the garden. They rejected God, so God exiled them from the garden and then he posted these cherubim, these are winged angelic creatures at the outside of the garden to make sure that the humans couldn't get back in to the garden. Now, when, when humans fell, creation also fell. We know that from Romans chapter 8. So humans, we are supposed to take care of creation. We are called in Genesis to care for creation. We haven't done the greatest job of that. Therefore, creation is marred. It's not what it's supposed to be. Nevertheless, even in its marred state, creation is telling us that God wants to make his home here. David looks out at creation and can see the vestiges of God. Psalm uh, Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So we can look out at creation even in its marred state and see that God wants to make his home here. Creation, when you really think about it, is intoxicating. You, you, can, you can see it, you can smell it, you can taste it, you can feel it, you can touch it, you can use all of your senses to experience creation. And creation is telling us, among other things, that God wants to make his home here. If you look at Psalm 65 and Psalm 96, you get the idea that if you pay attention, you can hear and see and smell and touch and even taste the heavens and the earth rejoicing, the fields exulting, the hills girding themselves with joy, and the trees and the meadows and the valleys singing for joy. So, we want to look for God today, right? Where do you look for God? First of all, look for him in creation. He wants you to find him in creation. So after we visited Paris, the three of us took a train from Paris to Lausanne, Switzerland, where Christina, our other daughter, was finishing up her studies there as part of a studies, study abroad program. And then uh, on our first full day, we decided to take a train ride. So we got on a train in Lausanne, and our destination was going to be Zermatt. So it was this beautiful sun-kissed day. We get on the train. The train is hugging Lake Geneva. You can see the Alps in the background. And eventually, we're climbing the Alps. And eventually, we get to Zermatt. Now, Zermatt actually was not our ultimate destination because once we got to Zermatt, we got on a series of three different lifts. And finally, the final lift stopped. And we all four of us poured out of this car at the same time. And all at the same time, we looked around and we gasped. We said, wow, we just about sucked the oxygen right out of the universe. Because all of us at the same time saw this. And I don't know why we didn't see it on the lifts, but we all saw it at the same time as we poured out of our car. And as soon as I saw it, I just wanted to worship. That's the Matterhorn, the real thing, not the Disneyland thing. (laughs) So we spent a week in Europe. We brought Christina back home with us because she was finishing up her program. And when I came home, I could tell that we had moved to a different part of spring around here. How could I tell that? The air felt a little different. The smells were a little different. 
Have you ever noticed how fast things change? You might not notice that unless you're gone for a week and then the smells are a little bit different. I talk to many people who have come from different parts of the country and some of them will say, well, I really miss the seasons. And I want to say to, him, say to them, we have seasons. They're just not as pronounced. And the seasons here make you appreciate subtlety. I try to pay attention for the change of seasons. When the first whiff of spring happens, I go, oh, okay, it's spring. When the first whiff of fall happens, I say, oh, okay, it's fall, right? And no day is exactly like any other day. There's always something new to experience of God in each new day. The day is not like the night. No night is like another night. The cloud formations, they're never exactly the same. You can experience the beauty and the glory and the grandeur of God here in creation. And one of the things that the creation is trying to tell us is that God wants to make his home here with us and invite us into his home. I try to take a moment each day when I go outside my house for the first time just to stop, to breathe to feel the air against my skin, to smell, to hear the birds, to experience God in creation for just a moment. I try to do the same thing at nighttime, too, before I go to bed, because it feels different at night. Now, this is actually my favorite time of year here on the campus of Peninsula Bible Church. So you can experience God, you can experience creation here at Peninsula Bible Church. You can experience God here in this room. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but also around the campus. Now, at this particular time, we have uh, the spring is, spring is sprung, and my favorite spot on this campus at this time of year is right outside those double doors. You keep walking, and there you will see a little fence off to the left, and then the building is off to the right. And on the fence, there is, I guess this is jasmine. Right? And this is a very sharp smell. Jasmine or some form of jasmine. Now, on the other side, there's this. I don't know what this is, but it smells sweet. So this time of year, you get both of those, and sometimes I'll be walking over there, I'll lean one way, and then I'll lean another way, and I get both. And sometimes, if the air is just right, you don't have to lean anyway. You just walk slowly through there, and you get both smells. And sometimes I get greedy, and I pick a little of each, and I put them together. Oh, that together is just awesome. You get the sweet and the sharp together. Listen to Psalm 19, verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, speaking of creation, and night to night reveals knowledge. God is speaking through creation, and he's telling us this is his home. He wants to dwell with us here. And sometimes if you pay attention, you can sense his presence. First stop, creation. Second stop, tabernacle our text in Exodus this morning. Now, in order for God to dwell with humans again, sacrifices were necessary because as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
So in the book of Exodus, you see that God ordains these priests to offer sacrifices for the sake of the people. But before the priests do that, you get two chapters, Exodus chapter uh, 28 and 29, two chapters worth of regulations for the priests themselves, all the things that they have to go through, all the sacrifices they have to make for themselves before they are qualified to offer sacrifices for the people because the priests themselves are sinners. So then the priests are offering sacrifices on behalf of the people so that what? Look at Exodus chapter 29, verses 45 and 46, our key text for this morning from Exodus. I will dwell among the people of Israel. This is the Lord speaking. And I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt for what purpose? That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The Lord liberates the people from Egypt, from bondage, not simply for the sake of freedom, but for the sake of freedom that allows God to come and dwell with them and them to worship him. Not this abstract sense of, say, American freedom, which is self-determination. Freedom, biblically speaking, is liberation from Satan and sin so that God can dwell among us and we can worship him. Now, if you look carefully at this account, these, these six chapters in Exodus that are describing the prescriptions for the tabernacle, it very much parallels Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the creation account. The creation account and the tabernacle account are very similar. So if you pay close attention as you're reading through the scriptures and you get to the tabernacle account, you would say, huh, I think maybe I've read something like this before. You have, indeed. So what's going on here is a sort of recreation. The tabernacle is a microcosm of creation. And remember, creation is God's home where God wants to dwell. Now he wants to dwell in an extreme, uh, intense way within the tabernacle to illustrate for the people that he is dwelling with them. So, for example, in both accounts you have cherubim. Winged angelic creatures. Now remember, in the Genesis account, the cherubim were posted to make sure that the people didn't get back into the garden. Now what do we have? We have cherubim that are sculpted and made to be part of the Ark of the Covenant. And here's what the Ark of the Covenant must have looked like, according to the description we have in Exodus. Something like this. The Ark of the Covenant represents the throne of God. He's enthroned between the cherubim. There are the, there are the cherubim. And now what are the cherubim doing? Inviting people back into the presence of God. You see the difference? There's a parallel. There's a parallel. There's a similarity. But there's a difference as well, a contrast, so that the people are, in, are being invited back into the presence of God. Second stop, tabernacle. Whirlwind tour here. Third stop, temple. Now, the, the, the tabernacle was this portable thing that could be taken around in the wilderness. Eventually, when the people settled into the promised land, the Lord wanted to settle there with them as well. So he ordered the people to build him this fixed temple in Jerusalem. 
However, the people rebelled against God. God told them if they rebelled against him, he was going to kick them out of the land. That happened. They rebelled. He kicked them out of the land. He raised up the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple in 586 BC. And the people of Israel then go off into exile. They are removed from the land, which raises the question, does this represent the end? Does God not want to dwell with his people anymore? No. What happens is the exile represents a new beginning, a renewal, so that God eventually, after 70 years, calls the people to come back to Jerusalem, orders them to rebuild the temple, and they, in fact, do rebuild the temple. However, when Jesus shows up on the scene and he goes to the temple, he says, you have turned the temple into literally a den of insurrectionists. So you're hiding out in the temple thinking that everything is okay, that God is with you, when really you're planning to take up arms against the Romans when what I want you to do is to be a light to the nations. Jesus says this, this is the, the temple is going to go. If you proceed, like, if you proceed to, along these lines, the, the temple is going to be destroyed. And indeed it was. Jesus' prophecy came through in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple because the people took arms up against the Romans. So what's needed now is not a new beginning, but a new, new beginning, an entirely different kind of beginning for God to dwell with his people. Fourth stop, Christ. Now the Magi, we celebrate that at Christmas time, they came to visit but they bypass the temple. They come to worship, and they don't come to Jerusalem. They don't come to the temple where God supposedly dwelled, but he didn't dwell there anymore. He abandoned the temple long ago because the people had abandoned him. And they proceed to this backwater town of Bethlehem, and they worship. And where do they worship? They worship at the feet of this little baby, Christ. God dwells in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says this, For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is a temple. Christ is a human temple. Now, if you look at the description of the tabernacle, there are different aspects of it, and many of them point to Christ. For example, there, there's this description and prescription for a lampstand to illuminate the temple. Well, Jesus comes along, and what does he say? I am the light of the world. There is the bread of presence. There is the bread that is continually in the presence of God. Jesus comes along, and what does he say? I am what? The bread of life. So the tabernacle was, and the temple, they were pointing to Christ all along. Jesus then also is not only the temple, he's a priest who offers a sacrifice. He is a different kind of priest who offers a different kind of sacrifice. He is a sinless priest. So he doesn't need to offer all of those sacrifices on behalf of himself, first of all. 
And then his sacrifice is the perfect sacrifice, so it's the final sacrifice. You don't need to do any of these other sacrifices anymore. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. He, Christ, has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And as the writer of Hebrews also observes in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We need Christ, and it's the sacrifice of Christ that takes away sins. And when Jesus died, when he was crucified, the veil of the temple, which separated the holy place from the most holy place, was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that mean? Two things. The temple is going to be destroyed, just as Jesus said, and indeed it was in 70 AD. And it also indicates, according to the writer of Hebrews again, that Christ has opened up a new and living way into the very presence of God. There is an early legend that has it that when Christ was crucified, he was crucified in the very spot that Adam, the first human, was buried. It's a legend. Whether true or not, I think it offers us a compelling picture of what Christ actually has done. In fact, based on this early legend, there were many works of art and stained glass windows in early years that indicated this. Look at one of them. There's Christ being crucified. There's a skull underneath him. That is the skull of Adam in this particular painting. So do you see what Christ does? He overcomes the sin of Adam. The sin of Adam brings death to all humanity. The death of Christ overcomes the death that was brought by the sin of Adam. Beautiful, beautiful, awesome illustration. Amen. Fifth stop, the church. Fifth stop, us, on the hop-on, hop-off Big bus tour of the scriptures. Now, Christ, the Spirit of God, dwells in each of us, but we also read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and will be their God and they shall be my people. Notice, this goes all the way back to Genesis. I will walk among them. This goes back to Exodus. I will make my dwelling among them. And now, it's not the building. It's not a temple. It's us. We are the temple of the living God. And the spirit of the living God dwells among us. So, look for God in creation. Look for God in the church. And as we are fond of saying around here, the church isn't the building, the church is the people. And as our sign proclaims outside, Peninsula Bible Church meets here. And it meets other places. It meets in homes and apartments and parks. It meets wherever the people of God are gathered to pray and to study the scriptures and to encourage one another and to break bread together. It meets all over the place. 
And the church, by the way, meets down the road at AME Zion and across the road at First Christian Church and at countless other places around the world where the people of God are gathered to worship him. That's where God is. That's where the temple of God is. So when we sing, there is joy in the house of the Lord, we're not singing about the building. We're singing about what's happening among us. I have a vivid memory of the first time I ever set foot in this church. It was 50 years ago, as a matter of fact. I came here for a Sunday evening service. I had just come to Christ as a teenager. And uh, I sat uh, right back there, right around where Mo is sitting, where Mo and Ted, that's where I sat. I have this vivid memory. That's where I was 50 years ago. And toward the end of the service, I was very stunned to experience this. They started passing the microphone around. And people stood up one by one, and they shared their hearts. I had never experienced anything like this before. And I remember there was one guy that was right sitting around where Chi and Patricia are sitting. And he stood up. The microphone came to him. And he said, told all of these people that he tried to commit suicide. And he had failed. And I was stunned by this because, of course, at the age of 16, I knew that people tried to commit suicide, but I did not know that anyone, anywhere, had the courage to stand up in front of hundreds of people that obviously he didn't know and tell people that he had tried to commit suicide and felt safe enough to do that in the church, in the body of Christ. Now, I wouldn't have said this at the time, but I can say it now. I sensed the presence of God in the church. Look for God in the church. And you never know when you're going to bump into the church because the church is not the building, the church is the people. You never know when you're going to bump into some believers who are doing something and uh, maybe singing, maybe studying the Bible, maybe just gathering together, you bump into them, and maybe there's some kind of need that you have and they are able to meet that need. I was struck reading recently a, a book by, the, by a poet, an Irish poet by the name of Padraig Otuma. And he says that as a young man, he left Ireland, he moved to New York, and he was hoping to be able to find himself in New York, but he didn't. Instead, he lost himself. He had no identity, he had no sense of purpose, he had no sense of what he was doing, and then he went for a walk in New York, and then he got lost, literally. Went for a walk in New York, and he got lost. And eventually, he found himself back to a subway, and, he, uh, and he, he ended up in a subway station underneath Grand Central Station as a young man. Listen to what he says. I couldn't make up my mind about what to do, either with the day or with my life. Both seemed open, and both were intimidating. I heard some music from a, uh, from a side of the station and went to look. In the corner was a woman. She was wearing a dress and fancy shoes and a coat and a small hat. Her face was clear and bright, and she was singing along to recorded music. It must have been a well-known church song because all of the others around her were joining in with the chorus, a chorus that just repeated Alleluia over and over like a jazzy psalm. She had a lovely voice and moved with style and rhythm, smiling and singing and repeating, 
Hallelujah. I didn't feel like singing, but she was so full of life, I couldn't leave. And he says that she was singing songs based on John 4, the woman at the well. So there I was in the belly of the city hearing songs about a story that I loved on a day when everything seemed to be dying. I was the only white boy surrounded by black women twice my age, and they were singing Alleluia, and I was crying and thinking that maybe everything wasn't lost anyway. Have you ever had an experience like that? You were down, devastated, suffering, and somebody came along at just the right time. You walked into just the right place at the right time. You bumped into the church. So by the way, what I experienced 50 years ago here in this church, we've been doing it for all these years since then. Next week, next week, you're going to have an opportunity to share your heart with the church as we pass the mic or as you come forward and use the mic up, forward, up front. I can't remember which way we're doing it these days. But anyway, you might say something and share something if you share something from your heart that someone might remember 50 years later, right? Sometimes you sense God in the church. Final stop. New creation. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to chapter 22, verse 5. He sees, John sees this vision of the new creation, and he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. But he looks at this vision that he sees of the new Jerusalem, and there's something that he doesn't see. There is something that is very conspicuous by its absence. What do we know about Jerusalem? What's the centerpiece of Jerusalem? What makes Jerusalem tick? The center of Jerusalem is the temple. And he looks at the new Jerusalem, and he sees that there is no temple in it. Does that mean that God has finally had enough with humans? He's not going to dwell with humans anymore. There's been so much sin, so much violence, so much rejection, so much abuse. He's not going to dwell with humans anymore. Is that what John is saying? That can't be because, listen to what John writes in Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This echoes our Exodus text this morning. God is going to dwell with his people. Well, how is he going to dwell with his people? There's no temple. Ah, when John sees the vision of the new Jerusalem, he describes it as a perfect cube. Not to say that it's going to be a perfect cube when it all transpires. This is symbolism. This is a vision. He sees it as a perfect cube. Do you know what also is a perfect cube? The holy of holies in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the throne of God on earth was. So you get the idea that maybe the new Jerusalem, the new creation is the holy of holies that it is the temple. Listen to what John says, Revelation 21, verse 22. 
And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that on that day, God will be all in all. He will be everywhere, and he will be in everyone. And Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, said this about that day. Every perceptive faculty will be an inlet of delight. And you can sense God. I have a strong suspicion that on that day, we're not going to have to look very hard to see God. I have a strong suspicion on that day that we are going to be able to sense his presence. Until then, look for God. Look for God in creation. Look for God in the church. So I hope you have enjoyed our hop-on, hop-off, big bus tour of the scriptures today. So what have we seen? We have seen where God has dwelled, where he is dwelling, and where he will dwell. We have seen him dwell in creation, the tabernacle, the temple, Christ, the church, and the new creation. And what do we see in all of this? We see that God dwells and wants to dwell where his people are. God wants to dwell with us. I've enjoyed serving as your tour guide this morning. <laughs> Come back and visit us anytime. <laughs> All right, we need, we need to respond to this. We are the church. We are the people of God. God dwells here. Christ dwells in us and among us, and we want to magnify Christ with these last two songs, okay? Can we do that? Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing a, a couple more songs as the church of God, as the people of God, where God dwells. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have breathed out this incredible story from Genesis to Revelation. We've just looked at one aspect of it, where you dwell. And where you dwell, looking at all of this, it takes our breath away. Thank you so much for Christ. Thank you so much for his sacrifice. Thank you so much for dwelling in us and among us. May we now lift up your name. May we glorify you. There is indeed joy in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen.